Hi, my name is Heather Pringelo. I created Systemic Renewal and I believe that no one and no situation is ever too far gone. Welcome back to Never Too Far Gone. This is Heather Tutrangler, and we are about to get back into the second of this six-part series following Favour. We're thinking all about how we get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, how we keep the right people on the bus for a long time, and how do we keep that bus full of fresh, right people wanting to jump on and be a part of the movement we're leading I guess it sounds a little arrogant to say right people, wrong people. Uh, Maybe that needs a little caveat. Uh, Well, first of all, I'm just going to blame Jim Collins because we are drawing from his work in Good to Great and the amazing research that his team did in 2001 that really is still very groundbreaking in describing the who of systems change. And it's his phrase, it's his term, and it's what came out of their research. So I'm borrowing that from them. Um, But it doesn't mean that the wrong people on the bus aren't necessarily great people. It's not a criticism of people in terms of their value and inherent worth in and of themselves. It's simply that, you know, we've all been on the wrong bus, haven't we? We've been in the wrong relationship or we've been in the wrong job or... We just haven't been in the right place that really aligns with who we are and what we value and what our dreams and goals are and and what our talents are and how we're really made to contribute. So the right people are just the people that really have a shared heart for the bus that you're on. Today I'm calling this little podcast, We Don't Need Another Hero, which in fact was a song by Tina Turner that came out in 1985. And I looked it up. It was actually written for an 80s film called Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which I've never seen and, frankly, hadn't heard of, but I had heard of the song. Apparently, she plays a character in this film. Uh, She's the bad guy. So she's saying we don't need another hero, but I think the overarching message of the film is, yes, we do, and Mad Max is the hero. But from what I can deduce, in the story, Mad Max raises up a following and he actually starts with a group of orphaned children who become the leaders of this movement, this kind of rebellion or revolution movement that the film's based on. So what this podcast is really about is the importance of having the kind of leadership in systems change that can start with the right group of people and build a team that leads together rather than having a hero who's going to fix everything and make the world a better place. It's always a group that leads systemic change. And this podcast is all about how we need to have the courage in our leadership to go small and slow and steady to get that right. And it really does take courage And I'm going to share a little bit today about the times that I've gotten that so right and I have been that leader and the times that I absolutely haven't and have tried to take the shortcuts that we're always tempted to take and then suffered for it as a result. 
So Jim Collins uh, wrote Good to Great, and in this book he talked about how companies need to recruit and retain the best. Um, what does it mean, the best? Uh, the best, according to his definition, is not a genius with a thousand helpers. And that's the phrase he uses. We don't need another hero. We don't need another genius. We don't need another person who has the ability to create this brand new product, this brand new system to affect and influence incredible change. But really without them, the building collapses because they are a genius with a thousand helpers. They are not really building a team that will last and even outlast them. So leaders of long-term sustainable change are people who get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and keep the right people jumping on that bus for the long term in such a way that will outlast them and continue to grow even when they move on or even when they die. Really great leaders are aware of their mortality and they have a vision for something that will outlast them and that is bigger than them and doesn't necessarily have to have their name attached to it. So Jim Collins describes in his book, Good to Great, he describes his work as a lobotomy on change. And what he and his research team did, just to recap, was they started with 1,435 companies. They examined their performance over 40 years. They identified 11 companies that had moved from being good companies to great companies. And then they defined how that was done. The study of these 11 companies drew out five core themes, and one of them was the idea that who precedes what, and that's what I'm drawing from today. To make the cut as a great company, to be in this group of 11, the company had to show that it had achieved stock returns 6.9 times the general market and that had been sustained for over 15 years. And then these companies were compared with a selected control group of comparison companies that had failed to make that leap. So Jim Collins wrote, the point is that who questions come before what decisions, before vision, before strategy, before organisation structure, before tactics, first who, then what, as a rigorous discipline, consistently applied. And I think that last phrase is really key. And what I want to lean into with you today is the idea that who is not just about having the right selection criteria, the right interview process and making the right decisions. Who is a much broader, more rigorous discipline that is consistently applied. It is about how we lead over time to build the right team. Today, I want to focus on this part of the research and the idea that we don't need another hero or what Jim Collins terms a genius with a thousand helpers. We need leaders who know how to build teams that will outlast them and can do everything they themselves can do. And that takes both training and formation and supervision skills, but it also takes humility because it's about believing that there's nothing I can do that I can't pass on to someone else. In fact, I must if I want the movement to grow. So change always starts small and slow, and it can be very small, and it can be very slow. 
my magic numbers that I have found in my own experience, uh, but give or take, of course, uh, it's not an absolute formula, is that to start a group that is going to lead change, by first understanding and deeply analysing what's needed and being in a continual action learning rhythm as a team, uh, you only need initially three people or somewhere between three to 12. Really, we don't need another hero. We need three to 12 heroes working very well together. That's the method. I could name a thousand movements. Okay, maybe not. I could name 50 world-changing movements that started exactly that way. But, you know, you probably already know what they are. What really matters is that I have personally witnessed this to be true multiple times now in my 20 years of practice. And long-term change always starts slow and small. In my experience, usually with two to three people who are working together, even in a very quiet way that perhaps no one even knows about yet. And for the first year or two, it is likely that it will look like you are going nowhere and getting nothing done. Or at least the work that you're doing isn't ready to be fully platformed and seen and known yet. So it may be largely work that's happening quietly and a little bit behind the scenes. And if you care about a system, you'll be prepared to do that without necessarily seeing quick results or any sense of credibility kind of flowing back to you. I'm going to share today some examples of this and how I've gotten it really right at times, but I'm also going to share how I've gotten it really horribly wrong and really paid for it when I have failed to go steady and slow, um, essentially because of my impatience or my own ego. So three principles that I want to draw out with you today that come from Jim Collins' book are what I'm phrasing, uh, attract the right people repel the wrong people, and have a succession plan. This is what it looks like to get the right people on the bus. Attract the right people, repel the wrong people, and have a succession plan. So first, how do we attract the right people? Um, sometimes we already know them, but there's something important about creating an, an environment in terms of the way we lead that actually is appealing to the kind of people we want on the bus to be a part of. And how do we do that? There are a couple of key points that came out of Jim Collins' research in terms of how that's achieved. One of them, of course, was to have a very clear and very compelling vision. Um, there's no point having a vision that you uh, alone find fascinating, but nobody else does. Uh, if the vision's clear and the vision is compelling, the right people will be drawn to it like moths to a flame. That's just what happens. And if that's not happening, uh, maybe the vision isn't clear or maybe it's just not that good. So that's kind of A. But one of the more key points that he draws out is the importance of having the courage to be highly selective. Selectivity was one of the key factors that was shown in the data to be attracting the right people onto the bus. And Bill Collins gives this great example of Wendy Kopp's work in the 1980s. She started out on her own, no team, gradually built that little team of two and three and developed a program where graduates from a teaching course 
who had trained at leading universities, would spend two years in a low-income area working in the public education system. Her vision was to take some of the best, most motivated, most highly trained teachers and put them in some of the hardest places and most under-resourced. And this she started with no team initially and only $26,000 in seed funding. And in one year, she built the program that was called One Day All Children. And she had graduates from Yale, Harvard and Michigan applying to be a part of this program. She made it so selective that it was genuinely hard for even the best to get into. And that must have taken so much courage because the temptation, of course, would be to be just happy with anyone that puts their hand up and says, yes, I'll be part of this new program and try this new initiative. She made it so selective that in 2005, 97,000 students applied and only 14,100 made the cut and the revenue by that stage was $40 million in annual support. It's an incredible story. So it starts small and slow. And in that place of having no money, no team, no credibility yet, being the kind of lone crazy person that has this audacious vision, in that space, having the courage to be highly selective strangely attracts the right people and ultimately attracts more people. It's so counterintuitive, uh, but the data shows it to be true. So not being selective to make numbers up is a huge mistake, even though it is the most obvious and easy mistake to make. And let me confess to you here and now that I have absolutely made that mistake you know, more than once in terms of uh, new projects or initiatives that I've been working to get off the ground where I just felt like we need, you know, the famous phrase, critical mass. We've got to, we've got to have enough people in the room for this to really feel like a thing. You know, it can't be three or four people initially, but I've learned that Jim Collins is right. It absolutely isn't true. You are better to start slow and small then bring people on board easily and not have any selectivity in terms of how people get to be a part of the program or how or why they get employed into the system. So that's attracting the right people. The second point for today is about repelling the wrong people. It's um, a strange concept, isn't it, that there's something we need to achieve as leaders, that's not only about being attractive and appealing in terms of the projects or the programs that we're initiating, but there needs to be a sense in which the wrong people don't find it attractive, don't find it appealing. It means being okay with no, being okay with shut doors, being okay with eye rolls and criticism and people saying negative things about us. Uh, it needs to be okay. In fact, it can be a very good sign that we're doing something right. The thing about creating an environment that has a very clear and compelling vision and that is selective is that it becomes an unpleasant environment for people to be in if they don't really share that vision and if they're not really interested in there being high levels of commitment and engagement in order for that vision to be achieved. 
and they will self-select out over time. If we are doing our job well and we are creating an environment that sounds a very clear, very distinct note, or another way that I put it is it has a certain scent about it, some people will be attracted to the scent in the room and others won't like the smell of it and they will kind of opt out and choose to move on to other things. And if we do a really good job of this, we are less likely to need to have highly difficult, painful conversations with people in terms of performance management, although we never get completely out of that. But we less often have to manage people out if it is clear who we are and what we stand for and the stakes are high and the standards are high in such a way that if it's not for another person, they will self-select out. And I mean, I've self-selected out of things too. Um, So it's not a bad thing to do that. In fact, it might be not only a good thing for the team, but a really good thing for individuals as they choose to move on. Um, They've been able to discern that this is not the right environment, culture, vision, uh, the values of this organisation don't really align with mine and, and they'd be happier and more productive putting their time and energy into something else. So the two points that Jim Collins really draws out in terms of what I'm calling repelling the wrong people, he writes about the importance of just keeping things kind of short-term at first. So tenure has to be earned. Uh, He says, be slow to give people permanent positions or long-term tenure. Always make initial appointments short-term with the possibility of ongoing tenure, but no guarantee insofar as you can. Uh, Make sure that you do have early review processes and uh, that there is that opportunity to check in regularly in the first six to 12 months of making an appointment, whether that's a paid role or a volunteer position. He also says, don't be afraid to keep standards really high have ambitious but achievable KPIs, have regular supervision and regular ways that evaluations happen both formally and informally, normalise sharing stories, uh, sharing data, measuring success and revisiting how that's done. And people who have a passion for the work will appreciate that and people who don't will opt out. So... That's repelling the wrong people. I found, in a way, uh, one of the joys that's happened for me in various leadership roles that I've been in has been able to become comfortable with people leaving. It is more common that it happens in a slightly relationally tense or unpleasant way than not uh, because leaving is never an easy thing to do so there's always pain involved and there will always be a sense of people being missed and people leaving in an environment that already feels fragile uh, does create a certain amount of anxiety so all of that has to be managed however having the wrong person on the bus is never good for morale and it's one of the worst things in the long run for achieving systemic change. So it is to be celebrated. 
when in right ways and healthy ways and for the right reasons people move on, it means we're sounding a clear note or setting a clear fragrance. Number three is having a succession plan. It's so critical to have a sense of vision beyond our tenure and to be thinking about that really from even very early on in terms of the work that we're doing. Um, We want to build teams where people are given real authority that they can step into, which has real accountability attached to it as well. But not just people that help out and run around and do jobs for the amazing hero, but genuinely a, a team where people are given the reins and they can run with it and they can stretch and grow and be fulfilled in their work. It's really important that we're able to train people and support people in a way that that's enabled, even if it takes a bit of time. So I guess one of my informal rules of thumb has been, if I'm leading well, then I'm multiplying the number of people that can do what I can do. And I want to know that depending on what it is um, and how complex it is that I'm passing on, within one to two years, can the person I'm working with do everything I can do? Because if I've managed that, then I've done my job well. And if I'm putting myself out of a job, even better. Uh, So we want to have that culture of passing on real authority and passing on the skills that the core leader or visionary has. And the second is the importance of appointing a successor or having a succession plan, even if that feels very early or very premature. Uh, It's not always appropriate or possible to appoint a successor as a leader or a founder, but it is possible to start to consider what is a very clear criteria for the leader or the CEO or the board or the management team of this movement or this organization and how can I ensure that the core values around who that person is and how that person is selected and what's being asked of them can be kind of handed on with some clarity uh, in a way that's going to outlive and outlast me. So one of the things that I think I've been able to get right in my own working life is being able to pass on skills within that one to two year bracket and see people not only start to do what I do, but actually even do it better or add to it and and develop it. Um, But one of the things that I think I've gone wrong uh, that I want to say is um, also an aspect in all of this is that When the time is right, it's really important that we have the courage to share our work with other teams, with other organisations, and to kind of allow them to take up a slice of the pie and have a share in the glory. And in a way, if we are working in a large organisation, to be able to share the uh, achievements of your team across departments and across the system and make it something that everyone can take a bite of and have a share in and that a broader audience, if you like, can have a sense of ownership in what's being achieved. And I think I've been a little slow to do that myself in my working life. Um, You can be too quick, but for me, you know, there's always this kind of underlying fear that 
the quality of what we're doing will get watered down, uh, that somebody will pick it up and say we're doing systemic renewal or whatever it is over here and, and do a very hashed up job of it. Uh, what I guess I've learned is, you know, that's absolutely going to happen to a degree and that's okay because the vision's bigger than me and one of the things that I have to come back to and really be challenged by over and over again is how important it is to just not need to have control over all of that and let everyone have a play. You know, we want to create a system where everyone can splash around and play in the waters that we've created and enjoy it. And if we can't do that, I think there's something in our hearts to check in on there. So let's move into a time of reflection and you might like to pause at each question today and spend some time journaling or sketching or singing, I don't know, dancing, whatever it is that helps you to reflect and to start to draw out the aspects of all of these themes that I've touched on that really have touched your heart and your mind today. So the first is attracting the right people. If you could afford to make your selection criteria highly selective, what would it be? And working backwards from there, what would stop you from making this the standard right now? Secondly, in terms of repelling the wrong people, how meaningful are the current evaluation processes that you or your team use? Honestly, really how meaningful are they? Thirdly, about having a succession plan. What training and practices would need to be in place for your team to be able to do everything you can do within two years? The Academy of Systemic Renewal is based in Melbourne, and so we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>